0: Our guest tonight is Gil Barndollar of Defense Priorities. Uh, he is a fellow there, a senior research fellow at the Catholic University of America's Center for the Study of Statesmanship. From 2009 to 2016, he served as an infantry offer, officer in the United States Marine Corps, going to Afghanistan twice to Guantanamo Bay and to the Persian Gulf. He has an A.B. in history from Bowdoin and an M.Phil and Ph.D. in history from the University of of Cambridge, and we're going to be talking tonight about the U.S. global force posture, the recent Pentagon global force posture review and its results, and where uh, where we ought to be going with our global force posture. So, Gill, if you could lay out for us just a bit what that uh, what our current global force posture looks like.
1: Yeah, let me, let me just speak kind of in the broadest possible terms. And I should say thanks for having me here tonight. It's always a pleasure to talk to John Quincy Adams Society members. And and uh, and I think, you know, spread whatever you want to call that, realist or restraint or, or spread, uh, I think, a welcome, uh, you know, uh, kind of counter to the some of the prevailing foreign policy orthodoxies in Washington, which I think are, are less secure, less ironclad than maybe they used to be. So, yeah, speaking broadly, the United States has about at any given time about 250,000 troops um, overseas, spread spread throughout the globe, and everything ranging from, you know, small kind of coordination cells or what are sometimes called lily pads. You know, very small expeditionary bases, usually to facilitate logistics or the training of foreign troops. Um, you know, usually, usually a lot of that is counterterrorism linked, but not necessarily, all the way up to, you know, massive, uh, essentially small small cities, kind of little Americas abroad. Most of which are, are long-term, enduring bases that date back to to the Cold War in places like Germany, Japan, some of the um, and not always not always defeated nations, but uh, but some of our closest partners and and countries we view as as kind of strategic key key hubs in in important regions. Um, so again, call it give or take a quarter of a million troops at any given time, and, and those numbers fluctuate, and that's that's setting aside you know big chunks of the navy that are not that are not. Uh, stationed forward as in as in Japan and places like that, but obviously have rotational deployments. That goes for the other services too, but the Navy's the the most uh important and visible of those elements in terms of you know U.S. ships operating far from their home ports uh on the eastern or east coast or the west coast or Hawaii or wherever. Um the base count, you know, I take those numbers with a grain of salt. I think they're both under and over counts. It's certainly in the hundreds of, of total US installations overseas, some of the some of the bigger recent studies have been, I think, rightly sort of attacked for for overcounting, for including ti- you know, tons of tiny little uh, things as bases that are actually really just buildings or, or or substations. There's some. If you want to dig into that, there's there's back and forth on that in a lot of open source online venues. By the same token, uh, there are undoubtedly things that are off the books that are, again, generally, although not always, kind of counterterrorism and and Joint Special Operations Command uh, aligned kind of stuff that may not be in any kind of public audit. So um, I've never seen a number that, that struck me as, uh, you know, it's something I had 100% clarity in, in, in unclassified sources, but call it ballpark 250,000 troops, heavy presence, especially uh, in Asia and Europe, but also in the Middle East, um, and and hundreds of installations of, of ranging dramatically in size.
0: Yeah, and, and so, you know that's that's the baseline that we're starting from. Uh, recently, uh, the Biden administration uh, launched a review of this called the Global Posture Review, which wasn't the first time DoD had reviewed uh, its uh, its posture abroad. Uh, and the, the stated purpose of this Global Posture Review, which gave its results. Uh, maybe two months ago or a month ago at this point, uh, is to ensure that our military footprint is appropriately aligned with our foreign policy and national security priorities. So what was the result of that process? What did the GPR conclude? Yeah,
1: the GPR, I I think, was universally regarded as a disappointment. I I mean, any kind of defense analyst you read or, or Pentagon watcher, I, I those that everyone that's spoken publicly on it, myself included. Um, you know, it was at a minimum kind of disappointed or nonplussed by its recommendations, all the way to some folks that I think were even more put out and viewed it as a really, um, you know, maybe an important missed opportunity. But um, yeah, there are a couple of pieces to that. One, this was something that was tasked very early on in the administration. I think it was mid February of. Uh, of 2021, when shortly after the administration came into office, before the Afghanistan withdrawal, before some of the other bigger foreign policy events of the past year, uh, the Secretary of Defense was tasked by the president with conducting a global posture review of all U.S. forces installations to ensure that America's military present presence overseas is aligned with uh, American strategy. Um, Of course, just rightly, you know, some people pointed out more after the fact than, than during the GPR, but there's there is a there's a question of why, and I haven't heard a satisfactory answer on that in terms of the, the uh, timing or the, or the sequencing here in the sense that the Global Posture Review should proceed from strategy, right? And the Biden administration came in, it, it owes its national security strategy, national defense strategy, and national military strategy, all kind of going downstream. Um, those are all due this year. In the interim, the Biden administration published its uh, national security, its interim national security guidance. That actually came out after the gpr i think by uh, roughly contemporary but there's a bit of a there's definitely a kind of cart and horse dynamic here in terms of you are um you know putting you're, you're doing your posture after you know before you lay out what your strategy is a place to be um so that's that's one argument that i think is has a lot of salience but regardless the gpr went forward took a lot longer than planned there was talk of uh, i think initially they had it set for may or June of 2021. Um, that got kicked into the fall, and then eventually it was a uh, it was a very quiet release in December. And not only was it released sort of long after it had been expected for whatever bureaucratic or, or internal reasons, um, but the entire thing was effectively classified. Depending on the least, what I think probably could print it out as a page and a half, two page readout, uh, and that was about it. And and then you know tried to be fair, tried out some some officials and at sort of the assistant secretary level. To speak to this on the record at think tank events and with the press um but what it amounted to and you know i said this somewhere else a couple of weeks ago the pentagon essentially graded itself and gave itself an a or maybe an a minus you know there were some very minor tweaks of, of kind of a, a division artillery headquarters and, and helicopter squadron to korea some limited changes to force posture in australia sort of a halt to the very, the kind of belated uh, Trump administration withdrawal of a uh, chunk of the footprint in Germany, um, but very minor stuff. So essentially, the Pentagon wrote out this report, released, didn't release it really, released, as I said, a really minor uh, kind of summary of what was in there, uh, and then and then said, hey, we're pretty much doing what we should be doing. Um, I think I specific, um, would look at this, you know, as I said, across the spectrum, and people like myself or many more in between there, look at this and, and think really, you know, given where, um, given both the foreign policy and military, I would say kind of slow motion disasters of the past two decades, given both that, and also given how much of US military force posture is a hangover from not just kind of pre September 11th or the post September 11th counterterrorism era, but even more so how much of it is a hangover from the cold war, which we're now, you know, 30 years past and then some. Uh, so it's really hard to look at that. I think to me, to look at that and look at the world we're in and how much of our uh, position, how much our position in the world has changed since the Cold War, since September 11th, and in some ways even more so in the past kind of half decade, as, as the challenge confronting the United States—probably not primarily a military challenge, but the challenge confronting the United States and Asia from from China—is uh, is now front and center. So you look at all that and this sort of legacy um, global posture. I, I find it very hard to believe that is that is how we should be doing business.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think just to to manifest how how big that uh, that legacy element there is, you know, you mentioned Little America's abroad, and when I was a teenager, I, I lived on one of those uh, Yongsan Garrison in uh, in Korea, and if you go there now, it's built right in the middle uh, of the city in in Seoul, and it's you know you could kind of see some of the sources of friction with the local population because, you know, there were helicopters flying in and out next to, you know, 20-story apartment buildings right outside people's windows. And, you know, I had a yard where I lived and there's, you know, 20-story apartment buildings, again, you know, 200 yards away. Uh, And, you know, it was a base that was built decades ago way before seoul was was that big you know was a city of more than 10 million people and uh you know times had changed and they they have started moving that base a lot but uh you know it really did show like wow this was very old i mean they had buildings that were there from the japanese uh administration that they had taken over that we had taken over when we arrived uh after the uh the partition uh of korea um, but moving over to uh, to Europe, uh, the headlines lately have been talking about a lot about the prospect of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and in your writing on the Global Posture Review and on what our force posture ought to be abroad, uh, you've suggested that the United States doesn't need as many forces in Europe as we currently have. Do you, explain your reasoning, because I think a lot of folks are, are sitting and looking at the, uh, the situation in Europe and saying, well, wow, there's all this tension. Shouldn't we be putting forces in?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is um, we are where we are at this moment, and I don't know. It, it seems to me, and I'm following the situation to some degree, not not super closely in terms of maybe the day by day, but but I have a pretty good idea broadly of what's going on. And you know, there's probably a, a better than fifty fifty chance, give or take a coin flip, of of, of war breaking out um, in Ukraine. You know, the, the Russians going in 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 pretty substantial force with with some pretty um big political goals. I think this the I think this, the the batting is that this is this is getting more and more likely, not less. It doesn't mean it's a done deal and, and there are all kinds of potential uh stand downs or kind of negotiated solutions here that are that are in the realm of the possible maybe. But um it's it's certainly a a much more fraught uh and, and combustible situation than it was even a couple of months ago, let alone a couple of years ago. Um, so sure we are we are where we are. I would say there's kind of a long and a short-term component to this. One, the the big mistakes were made a long time ago. I mean, I'm I'm in the camp of people that uh, that think that NATO expansion was was a mistake. Certainly in the way it went down. Uh, there's there's a long back and forth, and you can read plenty of stuff about who promised who to what to whom and how What was on the what was uh, you know really on paper and what wasn't in terms of the state of a a shattered USSR that become a, a, a very uh, weak and, and militarily, temporarily militarily impotent Russian Federation in the early years after the Cold War. Um, but regardless, we, in some ways, taking nothing away from from element of Russian revanchism, of, of Russian paranoia, of what Russia has done in its near abroad, never mind within some borders, you can, you can acknowledge all that and say the United States, I think, bears a heavy share of the blame for the situation we now find ourselves in, and that's been a, a slow-moving thing. Um, but hand, hand in hand with that is the fact that we uh, allowed and enabled a and continuing with the the security architecture of the Cold War. Essentially, we enabled Europe to be more and more militarily impotent, even as we kept ourselves kind of involved in European security problems. Uh, and and there have been multiple, uh, you know, the, the kind of warnings and indicators of this for a long time coming. And they've all been sort of brushed past. You know, you, you look at the Balkan Wars, which took a long time to Europeans were not going to resolve that. The United States finally stepped in, rightly or wrongly. And James Baker famously said, "When he was Secretary of State, we don't have a dog in this fight." But the United States eventually did go in and and help uh, bring both the the Bosnian War and then the Kosovo War to a conclusion. Um, you know, arguably saved a lot of lives. Those are those are, I think, still probably rightly seen as frozen conflicts in, in some form. And Bosnia may be heating up, and there's been there have been some indications that way in the last few months, but. Um, There's a long-winded way of coming around and saying we we've gotten to this point, and I'm I'm not saying the United States we couldn't we couldn't end NATO today. I think we should have ended NATO in, in call it 1995, walked away, been a, been a helpful uh, kind of offshore voice in helping to craft a new European security architecture that that really would have uh, included Russia and would not have been um, you know creating an adversarial dynamic that's gotten us partly gotten us to where we are now. And and by the same token had Russia gone whatever direction it had gone, you know, we're in the realm of counterfactuals here, but had Russia, you know, resolutely refused to uh, take that kind of hand and and had continued to see itself in opposition to the United States um, and to Europe, as it eventually ended up by the the late 90s, certainly the mid-2000s, had it gone in that direction, the new European uh, security architecture, I think would have been a powerful way to help create and ensure credible European military power, which doesn't really exist right now. Um, you know, the NATO militaries can have seen one kind of good taxonomy divides them up into sort of workhorses, uh, you know, show ponies and, and, um, and, and real free riders. And even the workhorses in NATO, if you wanna put uh, United Kingdom in that category, France to some degree, they spend less, but I think get more bang for their buck in a lot of ways. Um, Dutch are pretty good. There's some of these countries that have very capable, but usually very small and underfunded militaries, even there, uh, that we have that arbitrary kind of 2% of GDP mark. We see a lot. We can discuss whether that's, again, I think it's, I think it's fairly arbitrary, but at least demonstrates some societal and government, you know, uh, willingness to fund their militaries to a certain level. Uh, and only a couple of NATO countries are clearing that, um, the Brits, the, you know, two out of the three uh, Baltic countries, um, and clearing it barely. So, all that being said, I think the United States get through this current crisis. Hopefully, it does not uh, come to a war. If it does, I think it's pretty clear. You know, The President has said, has rightly said that there's, the United States is not unilaterally going to intervene militarily in Ukraine and fight for a country that, again, despite all the talk of partnership and despite what Russia has done in the conflict in, in Ukraine's east for the, for the better part of the last decade, despite all that, this is not a NATO ally. Um, we can go into this if we like. About we can have a discussion about the promises, and, and then sort of leaving the door open for NATO membership to both Ukraine and Georgia. I think that's a bad idea, but uh that's that's where we currently sit. It doesn't look like we're walking away from that. But moving past this current crisis, we need to get, I think, as quickly as possible to a situation where the United States, to my to my mind, should maintain. Um, there's some there's some useful tactical infrastructure or even kind of operational infrastructure in terms of uh air bases, in terms of naval bases, things like that that would be worth keeping, a few big hubs. Uh, but the United States should not be, especially, especially now as we confront a rising China, as we have enormous fiscal problems and and uh broader, you know, governmental, if not societal problems, back home. We cannot really be afforded, we can't really afford to. Uh, maintain, to defend Europe against Russia and to be uh, what I think we need to be in the Pacific. Um, there's a good report, a CNA report a little while back that gets into that and demonstrates that the a lot of the numbers that get thrown around on the Russian military and Russia's defense budget are artificially low. I mean, you should be, Russia is militarily pretty much a, a target in terms of it's producing almost all of its own gear. Uh, it gets a lot more bang for its buck manpower-wise than a lot of countries, partially by dint of using a, 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 about a third conscripts to do a lot of the the easier and less expeditionary jobs in its military. Um, so, you know, saying that Ru- and saying that Russia doing the kind of GDP comparison, saying oh, Russia's is the Russian economy is the size of Canada's or the size of Italy's, that's that doesn't do justice to either the the real size of the Russian economy and certainly what it means in defense terms. Um, all that being said, you can take my I think my report has a graph in this on there. You can take basically uh, Germany, France, Britain, uh, those those countries uh, have have not only the economic might Germany's economy really is about the size of Russia's albeit you know much more diversified and, and better in a lot of ways. those countries could absolutely afford to to defend Europe on their own uh, if they made the necessary commitment. Um, so the capacity is there, but it's it's extremely stillborn. The United States uh, needs to, I think in a, in a it's an overused word but in a responsible way, find a way to 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 largely get out of Europe or certainly not make itself the guarantor of European security as it as it currently is. Uh, I don't think this is a tenable situation. And there's a whole other embedded kind of discussion about, uh, about NATO and China. And I've written on that not too long ago and plenty of other people have, but the idea we're going to now um, make NATO into a, a bulwark against China and these kind of farcical little little freedom of navigation Patrols by a lone German frigate or a couple of warships from another NATO country. Uh, NATO, if if NATO exists as NATO, um, even with a U.S. presence, NATO should be defending Europe. You know, the Europeans should should ensure their own security um, from Russia and, uh, and any other you know feasible uh, adversary. To include all their, their problems in the Mediterranean and, and migration and counterterrorism, that should be where Europe should spend its its uh, defense dollar, its, its defense bucks, and its uh, and its defense focus. Uh, and leave, thus leave the United States for you to to look at after its far bigger interest in Asia. I think NATO. There's the famous line, you know, from from uh, now to see Senator Luger, I think back in the '90s that if NATO didn't go out of area, it would go out of business. And we've watched NATO go out of area into Libya, into Afghanistan, and I think the reverse is, is true now. Uh, and other words, I think there was a Swedish recent Swedish prime minister that said that you know if NATO goes continues to go out of area, it's going to go out of business because that that creates further. Um, it further waters down NATO defense of Europe or European defense of Europe and it creates more and more tensions in the alliance. Most of most of European NATO, and most of Europe in general, I think does not want to jump on uh American competition, let alone conflict with China. They would prefer to sit on the fence, and that, that's their right, and they can make the economic and security decisions commensurate with that. But um I, th- I think we we need to kind of draw down in in, in Europe as Expeditionally, expeditiously but responsibly as possible, uh, and really, you know, the much-valued kind of pivot to the civic that hasn't really happened, that's where the United States' attention should be focused.
0: Sticking with Europe a, sec- a second, uh, you know, a, a, a critic of, you know, the your read of the balance in Europe might say, okay, you know, the... Europe as a whole is richer and more populous than Russia by by a long shot, uh, but none of the individual European countries uh, meets that definition. And so, could there be a big coordination problem or a buck-passing problem where? Each major European player, you know, like France, Germany, Britain uh, says, "Okay, you know, we're going to let somebody else handle this Uh, and we're going to, you know, maybe try to work something out with the Russians and not uh, not fight them directly Uh, and or. Some of these countries also, as you mentioned, they build uh, either free rider militaries that are basically useless or these kind of show militaries that have like one or two high end capabilities that are really cool that they love to talk about, but then they actually don't really integrate that into a, uh, into a capable force. I mean, I think Germany uh, is, is certainly seen as a, as a country that uh, not only doesn't spend enough on its military, but doesn't get a lot for what it spends. Uh, you know, what do you make of some of these potential challenges of European defense? Because the the primacist counter-argument is that's why the United States needs to be in there providing security. Yeah, I would I would question that on a
1: couple of couple of ways. One is just the the practicality of it. You know, we for all of the insularity of, of foreign policy and and you know, American foreign policy. This, this, our, our country spans a continent. Uh, most Americans, from <laughs> from the founding to the present, aren't particularly interested or engaged in foreign policy, and only kind of perk up when when there's a a real or purported kind of crisis in the wings, uh, or especially when American troops are are uh, engaged. And even then, sometimes it takes longer than it should for the American people to to pay attention. Um, but leaving all that aside, I think you're putting that aside for a second. I think that the um, what I would say is that if we get to this point, and in Ukraine may be maybe, uh, I mean, a salutary example there, uh, the American people, I think, are clear, Polling around this issue, they don't want Americans going to war in Ukraine for a non-ally uh, to, to fight Russians. I mean, I think that's crystal clear. There, there's been, I think, Charles Koken Institute did a poll, obviously, and there have been other folks that have done that. Uh, you and And should... Let's say we we follow this, whatever happens in Ukraine happens, Europe remains militarily impotent, the Germans and and others are wedded to to Russian gas, and that's sort of the sword hanging over their their necks there. And, um, you know, Britain and some of the more kind of hawkish countries towards Russia, so you know, Scandinavian NATO members, the UK, Dutch to a degree, um, they are not able to kind of drive a consensus absent U.S., U.S. thumb on the scale, or U.S. intervention—they're not—they're not willing to—they're not able to drive a consensus against Russia, and Russia sort of chips away or salami slices, or whatever you want to call that—and we find ourselves at the brink of war. Uh, I think it's a very open question whether the American people would endorse a war um, to to fight Russia in the Baltics, to fight Russia in Poland, wherever else. Um, we can never mind the fact that they you know—the NATO uh, treaty, Article Five is a little less less than ironclad, and there are, there are other ways out, and you know we could do a lot less than fight a war. But I, I think there's, there would be nothing worse, a few things worse for American power than for a war in Europe to start, and the United States um, to, to basically forsake Europe under pressure, right? We would be much better served by uh, a turnover of responsibilities, whatever that looks like to the Europeans in large part, versus being confronted with a crisis and then, and then not, you know, writing essentially as, as some American political actors try to do now, uh, writing checks that we're not gonna cash. Um, you know, are we really going to, leaving aside the kind of nuclear uh, Holocaust scenarios and trading cities by missile and all the kind of um, Cold War stuff, are we really going to, um, you know, start a conventional war with Russia over, um, over the Baltics? I mean, we're, we're, in theory, we're pledged by treaty to do that, um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure in the event of of war that would happen, and there's a whole information operations and kind of propaganda discussion and all that. Uh, we would be much better served, as I said, building whatever that European consensus uh, on 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 Russia is, uh, building something like that that is European driven that has some real resilience, uh, as opposed to where we are now, which I think is the, the worst of both worlds. Um, I think the I think the American people are increasingly unwilling to. Uh, Carried the buck for for free riding allies, especially rich free riding allies like the Europeans. I mean, it's there's a much more uh, there's a much better case to be made for American military presence and, and American willingness to fight in the Pacific. Some of those allies are very wealthy too, but um, than there is in Europe.
0: So think, let's turn. The,
1: yeah, I think in the event of hostilities, it would be an open question how this would play out, and in in many ways, that would be the worst way this could go. So I think I think regardless of what happens in Ukraine. Not a NATO member. I, I think it's I think it's pretty clear no NATO member is going to um, actually fight the Russians in Ukraine. Um, they're going to measure short of that, whatever those look like. and we've seen with the overflight stuff in the Germans that even even that kind of support from some of the most important countries in the alliance is very questionable. So this um, this may be a kind of powerful moment for a look in the mirror and and finding uh, a better way forward than what we have now.
0: And uh, Gill, you mentioned the Pacific, and let's turn that way. And by the way, folks, for those of you listening or watching, uh, we've got the Q and A feature running. Feel free to drop questions you have for Dr. Barndollar in the uh, in the chat. But turning to the Pacific, China seems to be the most capable challenger that the United States has faced in quite a while. And uh, you know, there there's been a lot of uh, of talk and angst. In Washington, about uh, how the United States ought to address this, and you know, as you mentioned, the global posture review by the Pentagon recently did suggest uh, some minor increases in presence there. Although one of those was in in Korea, which is largely not in the uh, the China equation. But uh, what would you recommend we do with regards to our our foreign our force posture in East Asia?
1: Yeah, that's that's really kind of the trillion-dollar question here, uh, and I think should be the question that should drive America's overseas military posture. No question about it. Um, yeah, I'd say a couple things. I would say um, again, I think that I think competition with China. I think China is the foremost, you know, security threat uh, to the United States going forward. Leaving aside, there's a couple of obviously big, blaring transnational problems: climate change. Um, we don't confront, you know, waves of migration yet the way that. Uh, way the countries in Europe have that are major national security threats, but we could in the future. Um, but leaving aside those those couple of things that are not uh, discrete kind of nation state challenges, China far and away the only real competitor um, with the United States. Um, Russia is a very different animal and an important regional actor. Uh, but China is the only country with um, both pretensions and some in some cases uh, real ability to challenge the United States across the world. Um, and so all that being said, the, the, the military piece of that equation, um, I think the United States focus needs to be on the Indo-Pacific. I think the United States, more important, in some ways almost as importantly, the United States focus needs to be, uh, America's focus needs to be on its Navy as a, as a military instrument um, at the expense of the other services the Navy with the Air Force, may be a close second, uh, and the land forces should be a very, very distant third and fourth. Um, and there's some rhetoric about that, but we're, we're nowhere near that in terms of uh, budget share and the state of those military services. But all that being said, i I think that the, um, I think the sort of kind of trying to imagine a future war or what God forbid it comes to that, but a war in the Pacific, what that would look like, uh, I'm very, I'm certainly not a not a or I'm a skeptic at a minimum of just a bigger forward presence and just pushing more and more more and more troops, you know, airplanes, ships into the Western Pacific. I think this, uh, Chinese, you know, the the PLA rocket force is is a very real. Uh, game changer in conventional military terms. I think that the um, survivability of U.S. forces in, especially, uh, you know, big platforms and big bases in Asia is is very much in question. Um, you know, we have the, we have kind of the Spanish Civil War problem where we don't. We're trying to imagine what future war looks like based on some very limited examples. You know, you can try to pick and choose lessons from, um, from Ukraine from from that kind of slow kind of frozen conflict. Mostly, that's lower level kind of urban combat lessons. You can get some pieces about drones and air support and missiles from various Middle Eastern conflicts from Syria, from uh, from Yemen, places like that. But we haven't seen a major war in whatever it is now, almost, almost 80 years. Um, so we're really, a lot of this is simulation and war games and a lot of other attempts to imagine what the future would look like, never mind the whole dilemma of how you keep a a war between two nuclear armed superpowers below the threshold, you know, I'm not, not climb that nuclear, that escalatory ladder. Um, so all that being said, I think, I think there's an open question about survivability and I think, you know, both kind of dispersion and digging in uh, are, are part of that. There's a big question. That's a diplomatic question. in A lot of ways, what uh, the extent to which some of these major partners that do host U.S. forces, be it the Japanese, be it the South Koreans, um, Australia, how much they're willing to let us use civilian airfields to, uh, disperse our forces in the event, you know, if we're on the doorstep of hostilities, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but I think that the, I think there's an open question, and there's some folks in the Pentagon, according to reporting, who are, who are asking the same question with kind of a jaundiced eye. They're, you know, CAPE, I think, and, and DARPA supposedly are both uh, asking that question how survivable are US forces, especially naval and air forces, west of Guam? And they're still, you know, the major Chinese conventional missiles can reach to Guam. Um, but certainly, you get west of there, and it gets it becomes very dicey. And I'm not a believer. I guess let's say uh, in in piling in or in in, in automatically putting U.S. Um, putting kind of existential stakes on Taiwan. I think putting uh, I think on the on the face of it, the geography and the technology involved. It's kind of crazy that we would put substantial American forces uh, seventy whatever that is seventy five miles or so at its, its narrowest point from the Chinese mainland. Um, I think, that's a, I think that's a bad idea. I think the wisdom of fighting for Taiwan is period is very questionable. Um, but I think fighting in close and that kind of you know Marine Corps is, is driving this concept of stand-in forces and close in fight. I don't find that very persuasive. And I think we should be thinking, I mean, anytime we're, we're potentially going to fight a major power, we should be thinking in terms of a long war and what that would look like. So to me, um, the idea of a short, limited war with China is a really uh, potentially catastrophic illusion. I think that that certainly should not be The the guiding assumption: winning a short war
0: with China. Well, yeah, and you know, I think in a lot of history, the view that you can fight and win a short war. tends to be correlated with actually getting into a war uh, and not necessarily with that war being short. Uh, But let's pivot over to the Middle East for a bit. Uh, Last year, we pulled our forces out of Afghanistan. There's been talk of drawing down some of the temporary defensive deployments uh, with things like Patriot missile batteries that we had put out in the Gulf. Uh, Is that kind of uh, small drawdown enough to have our footprint uh, aligned with our national interests there? Yeah, I don't believe
1: so. Although it's it's encouraging, and I think that the um, you know there's a lot of uh, hand waving or, or even pearl clutching about uh, America's role in the Middle East and is the U.S. leaving the region and and um, and I think we are kind of slowly but surely, and I think that's for the best. I think the I think the greater Middle East, the Middle East and North Africa, and even you know the parts of Central Asia into that equation would be by and large better served by kind of benign neglect from the United States than by what we've been doing since the cold war uh, i don't think our military footprint there reflects where america's attention uh and, and money and potentially lives should be spent um so yeah i guess i guess i would say traditionally you see your you know supposedly vital u.s interest and in, vital u.s national interest in the region um kind of three silos you've got obviously oil or hydrocarbons more broadly and the free flow and the importance of um of the Middle East and really the GCC countries to to the global economy by dint of of oil and gas exports. Uh, You've got that piece, you've got the counterterrorism piece, and then you've got uh, Israel and Israel security. And I would say none of those things, and we can take them in reverse order, I guess, depend on a a robust uh, US military presence, especially in the Persian Gulf. Uh, Israelis can take care of themselves. They're in some ways ahead of us in some of these critical technologies. They are conventionally uh, unchallenged and unchallengeable since. you can put it at the demise of Saddam Hussein, but I'd go back even earlier than that. Um, so the Israelis, despite the um, the unconventional threats they face, most of those are are kind of are going to have a political resolution, not a military one, in terms of uh, Hamas and Hezbollah. And even there, they've they've shown repeatedly they have the ability to um, to launch short kind of sharp punitive wars if they need to defend themselves from those kinds of threats. Uh, counterterrorism. The, i think it's pretty clear now 20 years after 9 11 that, that the war on terrorism global war on terrorism has been has been a disaster i don't think there's another word for it you know we've spent a uh, lowball estimate would be would be six trillion dollars it's probably two three four times that when you throw in interest and 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 the you know medical costs and everything else say nothing of what it's done to america's attention or what it's done to american society and a body politic um I think that terrorism is, is nowhere near, uh, and I, I hope no you know serious, credible person would dissent from this. Terrorism is not an existential threat to the United States. Uh, even the continued wisdom, and we can get into this at more length, um, if need be. The continued wisdom of even some of these small advisory deployments countering terrorism, I think, is, is open to question in a lot of cases. Uh, and, in, and then oil, I think really, the world has changed. And you look at uh, Middle East gas and oil, two-thirds of it, including Saudi oil, is going to Asia. That's going to both U.S. partners uh, and to to China. You know, the United States is competitor, if not adversary. So to me, I get it. You know, global market is fungible, but to me, the United States' interest in terms of hydrocarbon flows out of the Persian Gulf should be uh, about the ability to, to interdict, to shut that off. We always think in terms of Iran closing the Strait of Hormuz and could be forced it open, and that kind of. Sort of tactical and operational question. I think we should be thinking about what if the United States wants to close that Strait in the event of hostilities with China, um, or guarantee the flow of hydrocarbons to our allies. So, I think the United States doesn't really need any substantial military presence within the Persian Gulf. Um, never mind it, the vulnerability of ships in those kind of narrow seas, and we, we've seen that play out in war games with Iran. You know, most famous, most famously, in the Millennium Challenge exercise almost twenty years ago. Um, and there's a back and forth on that. We don't have time to go into here, but. Uh, I think a presence outside the Persian Gulf, I think moving a colleague of mine, Mike Sweeney at Defense Parties wrote a good report on this, you can find on our, on our website, but moving U.S. the US uh, presence westward, you know, kind of pulling away from the Gulf and, and doubling down or, or kind of keeping the existing footprint in places like Jordan and Turkey makes a lot of sense. Uh, to me, the Naval hub, and if I was you know starting from scratch, the Naval hub that makes sense, would be would be getting kind of a timeshare with the Brits in, in Dukham and having a having a naval presence. It doesn't even need to be a very big naval presence, but kind of a, a refueling and logistics uh spot in Oman is that has been a traditionally neutral country, but has also quietly kind of done a lot for us um under the table, including the immediate wake of, of September 11th. So that kind of posture and getting out of the Gulf, which which has a host of problems uh, and I think is is far less important to American security than it used to be. That would be that would be kind of the the axis I would want to engage on.
0: Another symptom uh, or outcome of. The uh, the expansive global footprint that we have is a very high operational tempo for the military. You know, the forces being out doing lots of missions, uh, having short turnarounds between deployments, and so forth. How does that relate to uh, some of these issues around posture and strategy? Uh, you know, what's what's the nature of that problem? Yeah, I
1: think it's huge. Um, I think it's it really affects. Readiness and and maybe to some extent credibility of American military force when we are uh, clearly overworking, kind of grinding down a military, both both in terms of material and and more importantly in terms of manpower. And this is uh, this is as we as we like to remind ourselves and pat ourselves in the back. This is an all volunteer military, or maybe more more accurately an all recruited military, uh, and and constantly keeping um, people away from home and on a deployment cycle, despite being at peace. You know, call it what it is. I think the military. Um, yes, there are thankfully a small number of Americans in, in arms way and, and limited kind of counterterrorism campaigns. Um, but war in Iraq is over; the war in Afghanistan is over. Um, and even if we caveat that with a tiny asterisk in Iraq, you know, it's not what it was ten or fifteen years ago. Obviously, so we have this military that is a piece that is on operations, but not really, but certainly not at war. That is still grinding itself down through this constant demand of combatant commanders for forces, um, and we see this in maybe a place we wouldn't necessarily expect i think actually special operations forces some of the latest um data out of congressional testimony from them is that they're in a healthier place as far as that uh that dwell to deploy ratio we talk we talk about uh they're in a healthier place on the manpower side than they have been for most of the global war on terror but um certain units in particular air defense artillery you know the patriots the fad those kind of um really valuable assets as we as we're in the sort of missile age of warfare maybe Those assets, uh, higher headquarters, kind of core headquarters, and then especially the Navy and the Navy uh, Navy carrier fleet. We've seen in particular, um, people are always sort of demanding the uh, the kind of modern gunboat diplomacy of having a carrier offshore. Never mind the fact that I think we all acknowledge that the vulnerability of aircraft carriers in the event of a of a major war is is a um, is a huge question, or maybe maybe almost an answer question at this point. Um, We would not. You know we're not going to it's not the mid 90s we're not going to um cow the chinese by sailing a carrier a pair of carriers through the, the taiwan strait that's just not um that that's changed a lot we would be i think very apprehensive about doing that um same thing you may notice when hostilities heat up with iran most of the time our, our carriers or even our amphibious ships are are kind of cutting triangles in the um in the arabian sea a healthy distance away from iran's coast. So. Um, no question about it. The, I think the operational tempo and the, the refusal of, um, of both military and civilian leaders to say no has has done real harm to both the long and short term health of the force. Um, and I think uh, I think we need to kind of get back to a sustainable posture, especially as I said, in, in what is uh, what is a time of peace.
0: So we've got a question from uh, from Lily Doninger, uh, who says, you know, while I understand your point about the U.S. not needing to be responsible for European security. What does Russia potentially gaining territory and taking power over Ukraine and the Baltic states do for the United States? Is there not a strategic need for the United States to ensure that Russia doesn't further threaten American national security? Yeah, no, I, a couple pieces on that. I mean, one. Um,
1: the Russians for and I will say this I mean again I'm, I'm not a, a sort of a fan of of NATO um or certainly not as it's presently constituted and what it, what it does but um but the the Russians do in their behavior they are how they treat NATO members and, and how they treat um Ukraine is very different and that's sometimes taken as an argument to bring Ukraine into the fold I'm, I'm against that for for a host of reasons and all of which we're sort of seeing right now um but I think that the and I'm not saying just Feed the Baltic states to to Russia, and it's an open question of whether Russia would like to govern the Baltic states at all, or whether it's it's just a you know another provocation and something they they use as a lever. Um, But I think the I think that we have kind of existing the geography is what it is. I think the Baltic states, and they should be saluted for this, need to make themselves uh, a tough nut and make themselves indigestible to the Russians, and do um, basically what the Finns have done, you know, over over decades, have made themselves. Uh, a nation in arms have have introduced conscription, have used, have kind of built um, built a military predicated around what they can afford uh, and what they can do to make it um, both a, both a tough not to swallow for the Russian military. Although some of that at some point is a, it's a math equation, but also ask the Russians: Do you want to govern a, a fundamentally hostile population that is going to kind of fight and bleed you in a, in a small war over a long period of time? You've seen some of those arguments made about about Ukraine and some stuff that came out in the press recently about. Uh, unconventional warfare training missions by the by CIA and by DOD. Um, yeah, Zach Dorfman, the Yahoo News, had a piece on that recently. Um, so yeah, I, I think that we, we need to be realistic and we need to look at, um, at what we can do to uh, prevent Russia from making these decisions. But I think if the Russians are going to invade Ukraine in force, uh, going to, whether that's to topple the Ukrainian government to teach them a lesson, to ensure, to, to destroy as much Uh, of the ukrainian military power as possible um we're not going to go to war over that we're certainly not going to risk a nuclear war over that uh and the question the question to me the more important question and we've said as much right more important question to me is what we do going forward uh and what this should mean for for european countries facing russia uh the russians are not 10 feet tall again they spend a lot in the military they have pretty good gear they're they're light years uh past where they were in the mid-90s when their, their army was humiliated in Chechnya, the first go-around. Um, this is not the force that went to Georgia you know, a little over a decade ago and, and accomplished what it wanted to accomplish, but had, had a lot of hiccups on the way. This is a pretty credible big-league military, again, that is, has is fixed a lot of its problems. Um, but the, the Russians, despite all that, uh, this is not the old monstrous red army of the Cold War era, which had its own host of problems. Um, I think European it is well within the power of of European NATO to build enough military uh, capability and capacity to deter the Russians. No question about it. Uh, yes, that that would that require some alignment on what on the severity uh, of the Russian threat, and that's a bit of an open question, right? You have other European countries, especially countries along the Mediterranean, they're much more concerned. You see this from the Italians, from the French, to a degree, that are much more openly more concerned about migration and counterterrorism issues than they are about Russia. Um, obviously the the poles, uh, the Baltic countries don't feel that way rightly. So um, there's no there's no easy answer here, but I think that the uh, I think it's it's interesting too you look at what happened in the wake of the previous go-around in Ukraine, right the, the Crimean invasion of in 2014. Um, the two countries that, that to my mind took that really seriously and rearmed uh, were the, were the Finns and the Swedes who were not NATO members. They may be after after another Ukraine war. Um, Sweden reintroduced conscription. Uh, you know, spending a lot more on its military. I mean, the Finns just made a big de- a big decision, kind of again, it's Finland, so it's maybe not front and center on people's radar, but uh, the Finns just, just did a, an F 35 buy um, for their own reasons. I don't think that that's not actually really, to my mind, a, a show pony thing like a lot of expensive defense procurement is for a lot of countries. Um, the Finns bought what, what was the equivalent, I don't have the number to hand, but it's essentially for the size of Finland for a country of 5 million people. Uh, that's equivalent to to buying almost two thousand 35s you know, they made they made a huge a uh, buy and they've also you know wake up Crimea they've done a lot to change alert statuses to make their mobilization and their conscript military more credible in the event of a sudden security crisis. so uh while the germans kind of you know huge heavyweight 80 million man 80 million person country with with one of the biggest economies in the world um did next to nothing, the two smaller non-nato countries really did we are. And I think that's telling. And that's whether we see the rest of NATO or most of NATO, or certainly at least countries in Central Europe, um, take the take the Russian military threat more seriously after this. That's an open question.
0: So, staying on that theme, uh, Michaela Cooney asks, "What do you see as the future of NATO? Does it have one? And if it continues to survive, uh, what should Turkey's role be? Are there other countries that should be admitted? I mean, you mentioned the possibility that." Finland and Sweden would be admitted. What do you think about all that?
1: Um, yeah. I, well, look before this before this latest crisis, um, NATO. You know, the seventieth whatever it was a couple of years ago now. Remember when the seventieth anniversary of NATO, uh, you know, came and went, and there was there were just sort of, um, uh, I guess, a sense of kind of ennui about NATO and, and this kind of struggling, sort of purposeless. What is what is NATO? Um, you know, U.S. attention was already at that point. You know, the national defense strategy had come out, and it was already moving past counterterrorism past Afghanistan to to, to look at um, to look front and center uh, at at the Pacific and at at the challenge of China and to a lesser extent Russia. Um, so I've heard, I've heard people say, you know, NATO would kind of become like the Holy Roman Empire, would sort of just fade into this kind of political relevance um, that maybe it may be a different animal, especially in the wake of if there is a a major war uh, in Ukraine in the days to come. Um, but I think that the I certainly think that the Turkish piece is an interesting question. And when you talk about if we are going to, to get to some, even if it's not quite the level I don't want, but it, some real burden sharing in Europe, that's it's gonna be hard to have that happen without the Turks for all of their, you know, they're a very uh, difficult ally. They do some things we we don't like um, and are and a bad actor, I, I would say, in in chunks of um chunks of the Middle East and, and uh and Central Asia. Um, they've been tough to get along with and their, you know, their government is whatever you want to call that an an illiberal democracy, uh, uh, kind of a, a, almost not quite a one party state. Um, but, but Erdogan is who he is. All that being said, it's hard to envision a NATO that can, a European NATO that can stand on its own two feet without Turkey as a part of that equation. Um, especially given the Black Sea ramifications of that, the, the size and capability of the Turkish military forces, Turkey as a, um. As a, as a you know, kind of growing defense industry and, and their their drones have gotten a lot of deserved attention for, for some of the work they've done in in campaigns in obviously the Armenia-Azerbaijan war, uh, Libya, and now maybe maybe a little bit overhyped, but they're they're Turkish, you know, TV two drones with um with Ukrainian forces now. Uh so I think the Turks have to be part of that equation, um, and they, they their relations with Russia are very interesting, especially when you look at some of what happened in Syria and the, and the back and forth in Libya and the way the the way the Turks have played some of that over the last few years. Um, Sweden and Finland, again, I have uh, a lot of respect for what those countries have done with their military, the, the seriousness with, with which they are now treating uh, Russia as a, as a threat to themselves in Europe. Um, would they would they rush to join NATO in the event of a war? Um, I, I'm not quite sure that's the case, but I think it's I think it's a more and more alive discussion in both countries, um, despite kind of some internal political opposition, in, especially in Sweden. Um, I, I don't, in general, I, I would be uh, more if the Swedes and Finns come aboard. At least those are countries that take their security seriously. That are um, increasingly take their security seriously, are uh, responding to the threat um, from they see from Russia and uh, and have some military. Both both capability and capacity for a country for for their size, uh, you know, I, I'm I don't I'm not believe in expanding NATO. I think NATO should have been put to death, as I said, 25 years ago, or quietly retired. Maybe is a better way to put it, versus expanded. Um, but the Swedes and Finns have a much more credible case to be part of a European security alliance or security infrastructure than North Macedonia or Montenegro or any of these, um, you know, tiny uh, tiny countries that are obviously security clients, um, you know. The end of
0: the day. So we've got another question uh, from Matthew, my former uh, Marcellus policy fellow here at the JQA Society, who asks about how the nuclear, uh, the nuclear force, and the nuclear posture fits into all this. You know, do you think the uh, nuclear triad should be recalibrated to align uh, with a more restrained force posture you've described? How to, what would what would the role of nukes be in what you're what you've laid out? yeah that's a good question
1: um sort of a whole different realm and i'm i'm not uh you know a nuclear security guy there, there's a whole <laughs> whole realm of expertise there but but speaking broadly i guess i would tell you for whatever it's worth i am um yeah i, I think that we as, as we sort of is kind of current running under this whole discussion tonight um the united states has has more and more even even some very hawkish voices you know how uh, brands had a piece day. the united states um has enormous kind of global um liabilities or commitments. Uh, and we are realizing that we can't we can't afford all this. Uh, or certainly we're choosing not to afford all this. And I would say we can we can play with some of that semantic maybe. But um, when you look at the nuclear piece, I mean the only there's this the US and Russia and then sort of everybody else, right? For all the the um, kind of whatever you want to call that, maybe a freak out in some quarters about some some Chinese silos in, in Western China and this and that. Uh, the, the Chinese can can obliterate some American cities. We have, you know, many times their weight in terms of both um, missiles and warheads. That's not going to change anytime soon. Um, so, in terms of changing the triad, I'm skeptical about the, the from the bit of it I know. I'm skeptical about the utility of uh, the, or the need for for another whole fleet of heavy stealth bombers that are going to be you know, B-21s that are going to be tremendously expensive. Um, that ship is starting to sail, and and at some point, like the F-35, it will reach the point where it, it cannot be recalled, and we, we may already be there. I don't follow the proclamatics of that too closely. Um, you know, the submarine fleet, uh, that's a given. I mean, that's the most survivable and, and important piece of the triad to me. We're going to recapitalize, it's gonna be very expensive. Um, there's a there's a secondary kind of conversation about whether the Navy should be footing the bill for that or whether that should be its own account. Um, I think the Navy's gonna lose that battle, I'm not sure they should, I think they kind of already have. But, um, but yeah, you keep the submarine force, Sounds like we're going to keep the warm for The the ICBMs and that that, that discussion about the land based component. Um, you know, in theory, they're designed to, to suck up missiles and and that uh, that whole scenario. I don't know that that makes a tremendous amount of sense anymore. Um, I, you know, I, I certainly to me there there's there's an argument about do we need land based ICBMs. I understand there's some capabilities that come with that. Um, I don't think I don't think those are essential to American security as far as I can tell. Um, but I suspect we are, looks like we are there's a uh, nuclear security review coming, I believe, this year, another thing on the administration's plate. But um, I'd be very surprised given the given what they've done to date and given kind of the tenor of these discussions, if we were to uh you know cut down to to a bipod there or something. I think I think uh, rightly or wrongly, I think we are gonna keep the, the triad going forward.
0: Yeah, and I think there have been some preliminary signals from the administration that they might uh, kill a few of the Trump weapons programs, and that's about the only big change. Uh, but we've got time for one more question uh, from Lily Donninger, who asks about another country's uh, global force posture. Should we pen- be concerned about China's plans to establish a military base on the Atlantic uh, in Equatorial Guinea?
1: I mean, I- I'm not... Super fussed about that kind of stuff. I, I think it's it's a little more um, long term, kind of more more interesting or more challenging or, or more concerning than than the base in Djibouti that got everybody hyped up whenever that was established not that long ago. Um, but uh, it, look, I mean, we, one of the only places we have a um, a, a huge and enduring uh, lead over China in a, a key, a critical, maybe decritical military technology is, is submarines, right? Um, by all accounts, sort of Chinese, the Chinese have not crossed that line despite both engineering and espionage into having um, submarines, excuse me, and especially nuclear attack submarines that are that are as quiet as ours. Uh, and, and even though we've, I think, have in a lot of ways, have taken our eye off the ball in terms of on anti-submarine warfare for long stretches of time with, an, again, another, um, partially another, another kind of casualty of the GWAT, I think that expertise is being reestablished. We have some partners that probably smaller navies that, that probably do that better than we do. And we can relearn those lessons. Um so yeah, I just look, China is is a um by some accounts the, the biggest already, but certainly the second biggest economy in the world. Uh they're they have a military that is that is kind of catching up to where they are economically uh and is is you know probably pulling ahead of us in a few technologies and and drawing to parity in a lot of others. Um and that includes their navy you know they already have more more uh, vessels than we do um we have we tell ourselves we have more capability and certainly more tonnage um but the chinese are going to you know navies navies generally um go abroad not just go abroad to fight but are but are going to need uh bases if you have pretensions to being a global navy and, and not a uh a green water kind of or even a, a sort of near uh a regional naval power so i don't know i mean it's something to keep an eye on it's it's a little bit i guess disquieting just because it's it's our atlantic seaboard but um those kind of things to me are are far less concerning than sort of Chinese advantages in in uh, ballistic missiles, especially in terms of the the size of that missile force. Um, what China would do in its in its own backyard um, is a lot more concerning to me than maybe some kind of limited um, basing or or uh, access rights over in in you know far flung parts of the world.
0: All right. Well, we've been speaking with Gil Barndollar of Defense Priorities. Thank you very much, Gil. Thank you to all of you for coming out. And uh, please take a look in the chat at the, uh, the opportunities we have coming up, the essay contest with National Interest Magazine and several upcoming events. But thank you, everybody, and have a good night.